Welcome to the Scaling Japan podcast. I'm your host, Tyson Batino. And on today's episode, we have Skylar Alexandra Cole again. She is an associate at Incubate Fund, one of the largest early stage focused venture capital firms in Japan. Skylar is also a founder of Startup Co Creation Community that aims to curate genuinely exciting opportunities, share startup knowledge, and host events for its globally minded members. And this is part two of our series on venture capital. And this episode will focus on raising money and continue demystifying VCs for startup founders. Skylar, it's good to have you on again. And could you please uh, add anything else yeah, about yourself? Tyson, great to be talking with you again. Uh, thank you so much for having me back. So exactly like you said, I'm associate Incubate Fund, previous experiences and various startups. I started my own social enterprise and kind of the food ecosystem space. And I've worked in deep tech and food procurement startups, as well as VCs based in the U.S. and think tanks uh, across the U.S. Uh, and Japan. Happy to be here. And we had a lot of positive reviews regarding your first episode. Hey, I'm so thrilled to hear that. And uh, I've been getting DMs, uh, comments on my posts saying that particularly they felt that they have a better understanding of VCs now and their thought process. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. I think kind of like we mentioned uh, last time, as a the founder mindset is very different from the VC mindset, but being able to kind of put on your VC hat can be so helpful and worth, worth worthwhile to do. And my thinking, it's a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to understand their customers, mm -hmm. which is very important, but they also need to spend time understanding VCs because they're also part of the team. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We're here to support and learning how you can best work with us is, is very, very important. I wanted to start off with two questions that we did discuss last time, but I think it's important to mention again, because it's something that, you know, it takes multiple, multiple times for mm -hmm. it to sink in. But my first question would be, uh, what types of companies and business models do venture capital firms invest in? Definitely. So venture capital firms need to invest in companies that they deem to be venture backable. And what does that mean? So it means that a company has a scalable solution to a genuinely painful problem and a problem that whoever the target customer user is actively searching for a solution to. As part of being scalable is that the startup can generate exponential returns. And in doing so, being able to grow fast, be defensible, meaning that your idea, your business can't be easily duplicated by another startup or by another existing player, whether that's a big tech company or another organization. So I'm not sure about the Japanese numbers, but the number that I often hear in the U.S. is, can this company do, you know, 100 million annual revenue? And, uh, and the reason I want to beat down this point is, I would say probably 50% of the people who reach out to me for like help with their pitch deck or finding investors, I actually don't think they're venture backable companies. Mm -hmm. So for me, yeah. that's an important point to really get this through. Yes, most definitely. Even at Incubate Fund, that's a number that we also kind of in that range would like to see uh, in companies that we're interested in. And so, yeah, so I think it's an important point. And it's not necessarily a criticism. It's more like you might have to find a different type of investor. Exactly. Like venture capital definitely isn't a fit for everyone. And that's okay. There are pros and cons to venture capital, but there are also other great funding strategies like grants, crowdfunding, revenue-based investing. So 
if VC does happen to be a fit for your company, that's great. And I hope we can talk about how you can better utilize it today. But it's definitely not a one size fits all. This is similar to the first question. But uh, what types of companies do venture capitalists try to avoid or let's say tend to not invest in? Definitely. So this will vary by a particular firm's investment strategy. But overall, I would say a lot of companies tend to avoid kind of vice industries such as alcohol, drugs, and gambling. They'll also tend to avoid industries or business models where they don't have particular expertise or believe they're going to be able to provide strong support. Kind of a third category would be just any industries that don't align with their thesis. So that could be along kind of industry delineations, or it could be more kind of what type of founders they invest in geographies. Um, that's not really a f- reflection of your idea or company being bad. It's just kind of out, out of their space uh, where they're looking to invest. So it definitely varies, but those are three categories where venture capitalists may not invest. And in my experience, if you're a B2C or hardware company, mm-hmm. you definitely need to check the VC's page if that's something they invest in. Yes, absolutely. Definitely in kind of hardware, deep tech and frontier tech. If that's something they kind of cover, it's better to kind of do your due diligence and make sure you're reaching out to com- or firms that align with your area. Okay. And next is, so I do hear many founders complain that investors say they don't have enough traction. Mm-hmm. And could you help demystify what this means? Yes, absolutely. So what VCs need to reach conviction in a startup, what I mean by conviction is confidence that they can execute on their claims and that down the road, they can reach a certain level of scale. But what's needed to reach this conviction varies by startup. And so what does traction mean? Traction means progress. It means momentum. It means even validation of a company. And so you're able to gain traction when you have a business with goals that are real and achievable. And like I mentioned previously, are meeting a real pain point for a customer. One way you can show that you have traction is being close to or having product market fit. But kind of traction can take many forms. It's not limited to revenue. And I feel like a lot of founders, especially at the early stages, think, oh, I need to have revenue. But that's not necessarily the case. Traction can be a certain amount of engagement uh, with your platform, with your website, number of users, traffic, and of course, it can include revenues. So it really depends on what's relevant for your company. And if you're especially early, you may say, well, I don't have a lot of customers. I don't have a lot of traction yet. There are some things you can still do to show traction and validate your idea, whether that's kind of A-B testing through kind of marketing your future product and seeing kind of what engagement you get, doing industry research and getting feedback from industry experts to kind of, in some ways, rubber stamp your idea or even having focus groups where you can interact both with experts and potential customers and then document these sessions well so you can provide concrete results with your investors. I'll pause there, but definitely relevancy is key in providing traction. Yeah, I think you've mentioned some good points of, of course, profit ratios and month over month growth mm-hmm. is, let's say, the gold standard, the diamond yes. standard. That's ideal for sure. But in some cases, I think investors do know, especially if you're doing something in Frontier or something that has never existed. Yes. You know, it does take time to get your first customers. Definitely. But if you can... No, no, I I just, I definitely think you're you're right. Definitely in deep tech and frontier tech. Um, The milestones are different because the time horizon and the inputs required are, are definitely different than, let's say, your enterprise SaaS company. And I think another key point to mention to uh, startups as well is this point of like traction as well. Being a first time founder has a huge impact on this. Let's say, let's say you're unproven. 
VCs need to rely on something else, and traction is the easiest thing to rely on. Yes, most definitely. So, as an early stage founder or a first time founder, you, you don't have experience in startups, but kind of bringing in whatever kind of you have, what experiences are relevant for your business, and then combining it with any forms of relevant traction is definitely a, can help reap. VCs reach conviction. So absolutely right. And I've heard that one of the main reasons for early stage capital, like, you know, seed stage, is that the VCs are really investing in the team. Mm-hmm. And because if it's your first time, you know, they have doubts. So you kind of have to go, you actually have to really think about that and really try to show them that you are the team. Mm-hmm. And that traction is a key component of that. Right. So that's absolutely right. But I will say kind of at the early stage, pre-seed, where Incubate Fund invests invests in seed, a lot of the decision is really based on the founder, the team, the market, and the vision. It helps to be able to have something that is more tangible. But really at that stage, it's a lot of it is investing in people. Of course, it, that that will vary if you're in kind of more of a deep tech space, but definitely it's a lot on, on the team and what you can convince a VC that you're going to be able to do in the next six to 12 months. So I think for a second time founder, this doesn't apply. So I think we should focus or I'll focus on the first time founder. Mm. But what are some, I guess my first question would be, what are some positions that you might currently be in that creates a lot of credibility for mm-hmm. when you create your first venture backable startup? And I would say my second question would be, what are some things they could do now other than outside of position to uh, build that credibility? Mm-hmm. Well, I think what we what we look at at Incubate is founder market fit. So really, why as a founder are you best equipped to tackle this idea or problem? And that can be everything from your own lived experience to your academic background to roles you've held previously, whether that's in tech or whatever's relevant to what you're building. So those things really help us to inform why we should you know, take a risk on you at this point. And I would say there's not one that's necessarily preferred over the other. It's just making sure that it matches what you're trying to build. For me, like, because this is a question I've thought about deeply. Uh, if, if I ever were to create a second startup yeah. that was to grow fast and scale, for me personally, I think uh, I would probably want to partner with someone who's a product manager where they know enough about coding, they know enough about, they know how to talk to customers, Mm -hmm. uh, they know how to talk to marketing and sales. Yes. So when I come in, I'll be doing the sales, I'll be doing the marketing, Yeah. uh, I'll be doing the operations, you know, hiring the team. We can collaborate together and uh, Mm -hmm. really make the right product that the customer needs and is willing to pay for. Yeah, I, I think you bring up a really great point about being able to either co-found or work with people who have complementary skills to yours. One challenge we often see or I often see is that founders may have an idea or certain expertise, but aren't really able to execute on building, at least initially. Um, And what we like to see is at least being able to put something together, even if it's very rudimentary, but being able to actually create something that you can start to work with, start to iterate on uh, is really important for us to see. Because while it's ideal, you know, to have, let's say your CT or your chief technology officer, you may not have that initially, or you may not have that background. So really one, being able to put something together, at least initially, and then kind of having an idea of who you may want to reach out to, because that can be kind of a hard position to fill um, in some cases. I feel young, but I still have two to three attempts. I have two or three more companies in me 
Yes. Also, yes. But, it's, <laughs> but if I do do it, I am very cautious since it's different than in the 20s. <laughs> <laughs> I know but, you have some great companies left to build for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> First, the one I hear most often is traction. Yes. But what are some other common reasons why VCs mm-hmm. reject companies? Right. So kind of like we mentioned earlier, your company may just be out of their investment thesis or kind of wheelhouse for being able to support. Um, it could also be related to timing, kind of where they are in their their current fund. Uh, maybe they don't have any more capital to deploy, or maybe they do have some other investments that they want to prioritize. Um, additionally, it could be, you know, in the worst case, you know, some sort of prejudice or, or bias. But additionally, it could also be a conflict with a portfolio company. And maybe what you're building is too close or too considered competition to existing portfolio company. So that could be a consideration as well. So I would say those are kind of some of the main reasons why a VC could pass. Yeah, I've experienced that as well, where companies I've introduced, they actually already had one company in that space. Mm-hmm. And even though they like that company, it's like, ah, conflict of interest. Yes, exactly. Diving deeper into VC lingo or VC speak. (laughs) So another one that I've heard, I think, from founders is you guys are too early for us. So I think Mm -hmm. they'll probably be talking to like a seed stage investment firm. And the company is kind of seed stage. They're they're not Mm pre-seed. That's that's one case. I would like you to kind of elaborate what, what does too early mean? Yes, that's a hard position to be in. For example, at IF, we're kind of the earliest institutional investor that, that you can meet. So we invest in founders with kind of an idea, founders with a business plan, or even companies that have some sort of a company already established, but are still kind of in the early stage looking for their first in- institutional investment. But like you said, if you're at the seed stage, that firm may feel like there's a little too much risk and some more proof points uh, that you can reach before their investment. So it, it can be hard to kind of find that sweet spot. But there, I would say there are accelerators, incubators, and kind of other outlets, um, as well as angels that may be interested in investing kind of maybe if you're in kind of an awkward position if there is that strong alignment. Mm, no, that's a good point. And uh, I mean, there are more accelerators who take equity. Mm-hmm. And invest is much smaller in Japan. I, sure. I'm really excited to hear if Antler can get some traction. Yes, yes, definitely. They do potentially invest in the pre-seed state uh, companies. Yes. But yeah, definitely in the US and uh, other countries, they do have accelerators that uh, give investment in return for equity. Right, exactly. And, you know, definitely excited about Antler in Japan and hopefully kind of a growing ecosystem of these types of additional stakeholders. But you're right, globally, um, in the US, for sure, there are these types of accelerators that do invest. So even if you're in Japan, you know, there are some accelerators that are global or maybe cover Southeast Asia that you should definitely look into. One of the common challenges I see with my consulting clients is not having any staff internally who can drive marketing strategy and execution to the next level. This really limits the growth trajectory of a company, especially for a leader like you that wants to go from 30 million to 500 million yen a year and does not have the time to spend years learning through trial and error. To solve this problem, I'm launching a marketing agency that can help companies like yours to increase leads and closing rates through SEO, Google Maps, content marketing, and websites that convert. Head over to scalingyourcompany.com and book a free consultation. Let's talk about what your business needs are, where your current strategy is letting you down, 
and how we can help you see real results with the methods I've successfully implemented at multiple companies myself. Now, back to the episode. Is there any other maybe VC lingo or VC needs that maybe founders need some translation or interpretation to better understand? Yes. So a phrase I think you may hear is kind of, oh, we're going to do some due diligence and kind of get back to you. I have mixed feelings about what this means because there are kind of phases to due diligence for a firm. So after initial conversation, we will go back and do our continue to do kind of an initial phase of due diligence before kind of digging in deeper once we are more confident about moving forward. But if you hear this phrase and there's not really a concrete next step or some idea of when the the investor wants to touch base again, this could mean, uh, well, we're maybe not so interested. And what could maybe help is if there were any questions that were asked during if you had an initial meeting, follow up as quickly as possible with that information. Make it so that I don't want to say you don't want the VCs to think, but you want to make sure that you give them the information so there's no kind of lag or they feel like they have to do extra work. If you can minimize the work for us, that's that's great. We like that. So being able to follow up with information, uh, if you do have an idea of something that they want to gain deeper insights on. I think that's good feedback. And uh, I always advise startups approach reaching out to a VC like sales. And any chance you have to remove friction, mm-hmm, exactly. Jump on it, exactly. Um, yeah, no, there's definitely one, some strategies, and we can talk about that at a at a later time. Kind of to just like you said, reduce friction on communications. And I think the second one would be I like to tell people to actually ask the VC like how long they've been in VC, mm-hmm. because you don't know how good they are at pitching their boss. Mm-hmm. And so you need to make sure they actually understand you, or you need to understand your idea. You need to confirm they understand your idea and they know how to pitch your idea. Yes. No, you're right. And I think that as a founder, you're thinking about, oh, I have to present myself in the best way. But you also need to learn about the VC because it's once you, if you do gain investment from an investor, a set of investors, that's a long-term relationship. So you want to know who you're, who'll be working with for the next year's. 10 plus. So that's, that's definitely a very, very important part. Any other thoughts on, I guess, a VC or like a VC response that maybe that a person would need you to clarify what it could mean? Uh-huh. So I think another case could be if you're having too many meetings before kind of a concrete next step. And I think part of that is an ingenu- genuine earnest to understand your company more. But after you know, maybe three plus, and it's not clear what the what the trajectory is, maybe you should take the step to kind of gain some clarity on that. But if things are just kind of lagging, either with meetings or in just response times, that could mean there's something that the VC still doesn't quite feel strongly about. And hopefully there's a way to kind of gain some understanding. But if not, that, that may not be an immediate opportunity. Thank you very much. So my next question will be going into, so how can founders, are additional ways founders can raise their chances of getting funded? So first, I think I'll start at the pre-seed level and you can correct it from. So my understanding of pre-seed is that it's an idea stage mm-hmm. and it's creating the minimal viable product still. Mm-hmm. And investments typically range from, you know, zero to maybe a 400K. Uh, could be a little bit more, could be like a million, 
could be a lot more depending on the founder, but typically up to around 400K. Yeah, I think you're spot on. As far as the average investment amount, the average globally is about 400K. Granted, there has been some inflation in some markets the past few years, but I'd say you're exactly spot on. It's idea stage. You have to find a problem and a novel solution, identify a clear market opportunity. You're building your MVP and kind of have a plan on how you're going to start getting some initial customers. So exactly. For Japan, at least I only know about three founders who got pre-seed, but I think they got it around around a little bit under that range, but still uh, definitely more than 200. Yes. What could a pre-seed founder do to raise their chances of being funded? Well, I think it definitely goes back to kind of a similar point that we talked about earlier about showing founder market fit, because at that stage, you probably don't have any metrics. You're still building your MVP. There's really not a lot to show. So you have to really convince the VC of your vision and your capabilities as an initial founder or potentially set of co-founders and being really strong about why you have some special insight or understanding of the market idea that you're, you're trying to pursue. And I think just to kind of throw this out there, a pre-seed stage, you don't necessarily have to pursue a pre-seed. Maybe you're bootstrapping. Maybe you have other sources such as grants and you go straight to a seed. That's definitely possible. So you don't feel like you have to, oh, I have to do a pre-seed before I do, I, I do a seed. That, that may not be the case. But if you do need some funding or some extra capital to kind of get to your MVP, then pre-seed could be a great option. And additionally, I think, and this, I would say this is probably key no matter where you are, whether pre-seed, seed, or seed or going towards series A, is to set milestones, actually achievable milestones. Because at pre-seed, seed, you may not have traction, but being really clear and being really thoughtful on what you can do, not you want to be ambitious, but you don't want to just say something outlandish for the sake of sounding impressive. So really <laughs> setting reasonable mi milestones and also reasonable investment amounts. So I think in, in Silicon Valley, so there's a a guy who at one point says, I could have accepted less money. And that then may sound kind of crazy, but really making sure that your milestones and your raise are aligned with what you can reasonably do in the next six to 12 months. Exactly. Still even thinking like in his case, possibly he was thinking one stage or the next round of funding or two rounds of funding ahead. Yes. And right. so and one thing I tell founders is for the pre-seed stage too is make sure that you want to have it because uh, it could affect your series A investment yes. if you're too diluted. Yes, definitely. So it, it may seem kind of hard to think about this when maybe as a first-time founder, you're you're in this new world of VC and raising and startups for the first time. And there's a lot that you have to keep track of, but kind of who you have on your cap table and the dilution, even at the earliest stage, uh, makes a difference on who you can bring or who would be interested in you kind of in later stages. Having a great foundation now and being thoughtful about that's really important. Any thoughts on for the seed stage mm -hmm. to prove their chances of, so let's say they got the pre-series, what can they do to increase their chance of getting a seed? Yes. Yeah, so at the seed stage, ideally you have a fully functional product or at least kind of 80 to 90% functional. You have some level of product market fit, people who like and use your product. Um, you may not be generating revenue at this point, but you're kind of on the pathway to generating revenue at the minimum. You should have more developed kind of uh, market research and go to market as well as kind of a minimally viable team to get you to the next stage. So that's what I'd say for kind of seed. 
And yeah, I think you already covered team already. And so how about series A? Yes. So at the series A, you are earning revenue and are looking to scale. And at this point, you have more metrics to show and proof points. So some achievements that you'd have by this point are strong product market fit. And this can be shown by consistent revenue. You should have a strong team, a strong business model. And your metrics at this point just show a demonstrated ability to grow and to kind of take a great market share. At this point, you should also have kind of increased predictability. Let's see, the use of proceeds at this time are really to kind of grow, scale, kind of create your cultural and management processes, as well as expanding your sales and product. While you should have and should already be offering a sales-ready product, um, you may also be wanting to bring on additional team members for kind of increased product iteration or increased features or kind of what's whatever's relevant for your startup uh, at that point. And then when you're raising a series A, be ready for more sophisticated due diligence. So really looking at crunching the numbers, uh, looking at models, having your data room or your materials ready uh, at that stage. Gotcha. Yeah, definitely. They want to make sure uh, you have signs of a professional company yes. that could take that money to, re to reach the real growth stages of uh, the B and C rounds. Yes, exactly. At least in my experience too, like doing the mentorship, like I can mm -hmm. definitely see the clear differences between the pre-seed the seed and the series A in uh, level maturity. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I definitely mm -hmm. see it. I kind of mentioned this a bit earlier. You may kind of be, you're not pre-seed, you're almost seed. There, there can be a little bit of more of a gray area, but I think kind of the seed to series A, that's a definitely a much more delineated difference in kind of maturity. So just like you said. So I think as a founder, I think it's good to meet other founders of the those stages yeah. Just to kind of show you, let's say, the maturity of the company yes, and like uh, what they think about. And so rather than trying to figure out when it's needed, always trying to be uh, several steps ahead. Yes, that's an absolutely great point. And if you don't mind, I think this is a place Go where I think uh, startup co-creation uh, can definitely be helpful. Because while there's definitely a variety of communities in Japan, I think the maturity of kind of these startup communities and kind of places to kind of work and build together. It's not quite as mature as other geographies, but being able to talk with other founders who are at your stage or who are at later stages is so important. You are not alone and to be able to share feedback and experiences can really help kind of save some pain, but also kind of keep your energy up and excited about what you're doing. So definitely startup co-creation. We have, we're approaching 300 members in our Slack, startup people, tech people, people who've had experience in startups. So definitely a place to kind of trust and be trusted and share experiences. So definitely if you're interested, the, I think the link will be in the description. Yeah, I found the group to be pretty active. I would say compared to like, you know, other groups, mm -hmm. I would say it's really for startup founders. So mm -hmm. I find that a lot of the content that is shared is really relevant to me and mm -hmm. it helps me for uh, discovery. So I don't mm -hmm. need to search. Yeah, I do spend time. Whenever I get some free time, I do check some of the resources. Oh, and, so uh, happy to hear that. Yeah. And you, you, you got a good team of collaborators. Yes, yes. All the co-organizers are strong and bring something unique to the table. So really happy to be working with such uh, energetic, inspiring people. My next question is, I've not really actually seen much education on this, but uh, how can founders improve their follow-up game mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with VCs? Definitely. So I think the art of the follow-up, like you said, I, I don't think there's as much knowledge sharing on this, but it's really important. So let's say that you are, you maybe had an, an initial meeting with 
a VC, what's important is to be proactive. Uh, probably, unless maybe investors extremely excited, they may not actively kind of follow up with you. So in a follow-up email, maybe later that day, reshare the deck that you reviewed. Um, even if you've sent it before, attach it or send the, the link to where it is. Answer any questions that you had that were brought up in the meeting. If you feel like, oh, I didn't answer that question really well, or a VC explicitly said, uh, we'd love to hear more about this, follow up as soon as possible with that information. If there are any other materials or supporting files or videos or just anything you can show to kind of prove your validity, definitely follow up with that as quickly as possible. And we talked about this a bit in kind of the first, our first episode, but following up can be, I think, a bit challenging and may you may not feel confident to, to keep reaching out. But I definitely think following up with genuinely exciting updates is a step you should absolutely take. If you're actively raising around, you can mention anyone else who has committed any additional kind of milestones that you've been able to achieve. And definitely don't bombard uh, any VC with communication. But when you have something exciting to share, I, w- I would recommend following up. And I think for me, two thoughts from my end is one, I do use, there's many different programs you can use, yes. but I use something called Todoist and I set re- reminders for myself. Mm-hmm. Yes. Again, so I have a whole section just on who do I have to remind or follow up mm-hmm. on just so nothing slips through the cracks. And I also have the mindset that for busy people or if I need something and maybe I don't have as much leverage, leverage I have to follow up. Yes, yes. Definitely. I think you're right. Uh, setting systems and being proactive are two of the best things you can do for yourself and kind of being your best advocate while raising. And the other part is, and if you do have to follow it, people it also could make you reflect on yourself. Mm-hmm. How can you make yourself as a priority? How yes. can, like, let's say, how could you improve your product? How yes. could you improve your, your statistics? Well, and I find with a lot of founders I've mentored through the Accelerator programs, and personally, I do notice that once you've contacted the VC, it's kind of like, I've just thrown the responsibility to the VC. Mm. It's, it's kind of like, how do you make yourself more attractive? Yes, and, uh, you're right. It also applies to marriage as well. So that's why I go to the gym. Get some muscles, lose some weight, making sure I'm not a douchebag, making sure I keep up my game as well. So it's in the same applies to startups. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You have to keep maintaining and seeing how you can strive and be better, even even if it's small tweaks. So you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. Um, but I would also say kind of just an, an additional tip. You have a lot of balls in the air. And I think that, like you mentioned, sometimes it can feel like, oh, it's in the VC's court now. I think definitely being proactive, but also being consistent across investors. I think, especially in a relatively small ecosystem like Japan, people talk to each other, whether for explicit kind of deal sharing or just socially. So having a strong reputation is really important. So even though I know it can get frustrating kind of having to follow up, maybe not hearing back, needing money to keep going, all those things are pressures and I completely understand how trying it can be. We want to ensure that you're respectful of everyone you talk to, from executive assistants to associates to GPs, whoever you talk to, you want to be consistent. And even if you're not immediately investable, having a good reputation is invaluable. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scaling Japan. In addition to serving as your fine host, I also provide advisory and coaching services to business owners who want to 2x, 5x, and even 10x their business. So stop holding your company and your team and your employees back and let me help you and your company scale. 
find more information at scalingyourcompany.com. Now back to the episode. And one thing that I don't see founders do too is being very specific, like, you know, I'm going to spend this much time this month mm-hmm. reaching out to investors, responding to them, following up. And so I think if you actually have an expectation of how much time you should spend, yes. it'll be less frustrating mm-hmm. when, let's say, people don't respond and just kind of like, that's part of the game. Yes, yes. You're absolutely right. So those are some of my tips to help founders with the mindset of the startup game. And I think too, just to add one more thing, I always share this with founders, but I really recommend building relationships with VCs ahead of time, even if it's through events or maybe pitch competitions or just reaching out. I think this will help build a connection, build trust and kind of make these conversations or meetings feel a bit less transactional. And by kind of building a relationship ahead of when you are actively looking to raise, like you said, definitely having kind of expectations of the time needed is really important. But when you're built, you already have a relationship built. You don't just have trust with the VC, but you also show your ability to work with them. And it's like I mentioned, it's a long-term relationship and already having this foundation can only help your chances. Because it shows uh, a lot of cases you've done your research. And if you can figure this out, you can figure other things out. Mm-hmm. Yes. And another one is, so I guess as a pre-seed, maybe you could break it down by stages, but what are good questions to ask investors mm-hmm. to show that you've really thought about it and you understand the game? Definitely. So I think just as a baseline, some people will be more particular about this than others, but try not to ask anything that you could easily search online, uh, either about the firm or whoever you're speaking to at the firm. Of course, if you're not clear about something, you can share your current understanding and then ask for a clarification. That's completely fine. You're not expected to know everything, but kind of within reason, know what's uh, generally available. And then I think going into meetings, especially when you're looking for your first institutional investment, really knowing why you want to work with a certain VC, especially if you're you know looking to secure your lead, being really clear, like I your expertise in X will be key for kind of our industry or kind of our, our idea. So being really clear on that because it's a two-way street in a long-term relationship. So being the money is great, but it's not just about the money. So our people would reach out to me is like, oh, can you introduce, it'll be like a two-line sentence. Can you introduce this VC? The typical message is, I saw Skylar was on your podcast. Can I have an introduction to her? <laughs> and for me, it's like, ah, it's like, Come on, man. At least tell me why Skylar is a good fit. Yeah, because it, it's <laughs> actually quite hard for who's ever receiving that message to make the introduction and for the person to receive it. It's like, what What do you need me to do? There's a lot I could do. And also, whoever you're talking to probably has you know, other projects and things they're working on. So without having something concrete and laid out, it can, even if someone's excited to work with you, it can make it hard in that instance. So definitely having some sense of why you want to reach out or why it's relevant uh, is key. And it's, I'll say it's more of a typical first time founder mm-hmm. behavior. Yes. It's, so I'll say a second time founder, third time founder, they'll usually come to me and they'll say, I-, I would like you to reach out to this person because we have this synergies here. I know it will take you time to do due diligence on my own company yeah. before you risk your reputation uh, introducing yeah. to this person. Yes. Therefore, you know, I could pay you for your time or like, you know, if you could get me investment, I'll be willing to give you a few percent. Yeah. Like for me, if you're going to approach me, like that's for me, like I've been approached probably two out of a 30 times has been that approach. 
but in that case where you know like i'm like okay cool i'm gonna be with but in most cases like you know it's gonna take me hours to do due diligence on your company mm-hmm. right so i could actually properly communicate to my vc friends yes and so like for me sometimes like when i see that too it's like i i mean because it's a first time founder like I, i'm cool with it because I, I understand it's more it's not a personal thing it's more of an right. experience thing exactly but, but it also shows what's a level of respect mm-hmm. definitely for other people for me it brings questions of leadership mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like uh, this person lacks the empathy to see this even this first time founder still is leadership yeah so i don't slight you guys those who are i know because <laughs> quite a few are my listeners so i don't slight you for it because i know it's it's a first time founder thing definitely first time founder thing the reason i say it is I think it'll increase your chances mm-hmm. of people actually going out of their way to help. Yes. And I think you bring up a great point that anyone you reach out to and you're asking for something, they are putting their own social capital on the line or expending their own social capital, which I mean is invaluable and being cognizant of that and just some, some level of respect or attention really goes a long way. So definitely Keep, keep that in mind, even if you're new to the space, being respectful is something you can do at, at no cost. There's one person I helped, like, even if they don't offer me like a percentage, I'm kind of, I was cool with it. But one thing that one founder did was they would share some of my LinkedIn posts, mm-hmm. yes. like some of my LinkedIn posts, they would comment, you know, they'll at least give before they ask for something. Yes. So there's a founder in Osaka who's a listener of this podcast. So that was a good approach. Yes. And and I think that's such a great point because I think sometimes people may think, oh, I don't have anything to give, but there's so many ways to provide value and kind of thinking of how can I best provide value to anyone I interact with or who's someone I want to work with or hopefully receive something from having kind of this value focused mindset, whether that's sharing posts that that goes a long way, the exposure, there are different ways you can do it and and get creative if you think that you don't have kind of something yes just get get creative like in my case it'd be like i got you 25 new listeners to the podcast can you show me some love back it's like a cool yeah of course yeah and if you were to do that approach you know like i, I might say in a future episode like please stop i'm good to go <laughs> but like that's just a specific example but just showing that you know how to influence people yes also is a good sign because just asking like okay it's like you know this person doesn't understand about influence they don't understand pr Mm-hmm. And a, a big thing about, you know, creating a hundred million dollar company is being good at PR. Yes. Because not everyone just has like the best, you know, it's like the best product at the exact right time. Right. No, absolutely right. I do want to dive into pitch deck. Yes. But one it. thing I kind of see is I sometimes think founders are too focused on the pitch deck and not enough on being actually a fundable company. But this is a general question but do you have any thoughts of it or is it something that people misunderstand like do you have any tips for founders to kind of better understand yes so i have a few thoughts on this and i think there are a couple related problems that i see that kind of present as this focusing on the pitch deck versus kind of being a fundable company i think founders often overcomplicate the pitch deck creation and iteration process a pitch deck at the earliest stages should be a simple, clear message that convince investors on your ability to execute on your claims and give them confidence that even if you do pivot, which is very likely at the early stage, you still have the skills to adeptly pivot and keep progressing. However, simplicity is an art. 
And it does take practice. And it's particularly hard as a founder because you know what you're building the best. And it's easy to get caught up and lose track of what needs to be shared and articulated to someone who's learning about what you're doing for the first time and may also not have your own background knowledge of your space, which they likely have some experience, but maybe not to the same extent or the same uh, focus that you you have in that area. And I have to really credit my first VC role in the US at Guerrilla Capital and mentorship under Matt Morales, both at Guerrilla Capital and Startup Oasis for instilling this in me. A cool looking pitch deck, while it looks nice, won't disguise a weak message and an overly in-depth pitch deck won't disguise that either. So I really recommend kind of starting off with outlining the slides you need and ensuring you have a clear, succinct message for each deck or each slide. And then you can add data tables and designs, but really being clear on that message first is really important and I think essential. Another challenge I find related to this is getting caught up in your vision and forgetting to kind of do first things first. I understand this inclination very well because kind of as a baseline, I'm a big picture person. I love talking about a vision. I love seeing it and dreaming about it um, and sharing with others. But I've had to train myself to break that vision down into actionable, concrete steps. And I think this challenge appears when founders are creating a pitch deck. You definitely need a strong vision. That's one of the only things you have at the earliest stage. But you have to convince investors that you're going to be able to achieve it. And that starts with kind of articulating your first and early steps very well. Um, You can't skip steps. And if you do, you may risk actually being able to build a fundable company because you aren't able to kind of execute on the most immediate steps you need to take. I think that's some excellent feedback points. And I've seen uh, in terms of the pitch deck, I have seen both where a founder would say, I need to keep it within 10 slides. And it's like, ah, you you can add two more. It's okay. Right. Yes. Yes. And so just... Just make sure you get the key points. And uh, I forget, uh, there's a really good post on LinkedIn, which I don't remember where it is, but I think they analyzed the main, like early stage pitch decks, like a 500 global. Yeah, no, I know exactly what post you're talking about. I love that. I think it's great. I definitely have saved that. I think it's 500 Global, Sequoia, the Airbnb deck, and, and a few others, but it's, yeah. yeah, it's awesome. And I think to your point, it shows that, you know, it, there's not a one set way to create a great pitch deck. But as long as you get your clear message and you know, make it easy to kind of understand if you have 10 slides, if you have 15, you know, it's, it's not so set in stone what it needs to be. So that's a great post. Definitely should link to it. It's great. Yeah, <laughs> yes, you can find it. And it's just but there's like 60, 70 percent that they all have in common. Mm-hmm. And your slide should definitely have those six or seven. Yes, absolutely. Cool. No, I think there's been some uh, great advice. This is a, actually this is a bit of a tough question, but any tips for coming up with a valuation in Japan? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I think there are a few ways to determine valuation. I think, and I'm a bit biased because I do primarily look at founders who are globally competitive and teams that are going to be globally competitive. And some founders that come in with experience from kind of other geographies. I think the steps are relatively the same. And if you're pre-revenue, using whatever quantitative or qualitative data you have, um, looking at kind of competitors. So for Japan, I would say there are more companies on traction versus say like a crunch base. But you can look at both platforms and kind of see what companies in your space have kind of their funding trajectories and then looking at kind of industry standards. So for SaaS, if you're robotics, you know, looking at some examples and seeing. So it's not the steps aren't so different, but kind of the, the relatively 
let's say if you're coming from the US, valuations are relatively lower, but same steps apply and kind of different determine your valuation. And when you're working with your uh, lead investor, they will likely have kind of a sweet spot or kind of their own um, idea. But typically, they're really excited about working with you. That won't be one of the earliest conversations. Once they've gotten conviction on kind of the other aspects of if your business kind of the negotiation on the valuation will come later. Thank you very much for that. And I'm going to give a quick plug for myself, then I'll let you finish off uh, for yourself. But if there's any listeners out there who have a seed stage or series A company, and for the series A level, if you need help with developing yourself as a leader to better manage your team, or if you need help developing your middle managers, like your sales, marketing, and just operational team, that's something I help startups with. If you're a seed stage, I'll probably help you more on the marketing and sales and pitch deck, how to talk to investors. But that's something I am helping startups with. Done it for 500 Global Founder Institute, and I could help you as well. And then I'll pass it off to Skylar. Yay, Tyson. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk, whether for the podcast or just out in the ecosystem. Listeners, if you are either in startups or interested in startups and would like to kind of learn more about the space, whether investing or pursuing venture capital and startups in Japan or the US, please reach out to me. My LinkedIn is Skylar Cole. You can see my name in the episode description. If you're interested in joining Startup Co-Creation, please feel free to join the Slack and feel free to reach out. Always happy to help have conversations and really kind of break down barriers to engaging with startups and pursuing venture capital. And uh, we're definitely going to link to your LinkedIn and Startup Co-Creation. As I mentioned, I am a big fan of the group and I think the co-organizers uh, are doing a really good job. I highly recommend it for startups to join. And yeah, also check out episode one with Skylar as well. If you this is your first time listening and we'll link to everything in the show notes on our website and also uh, Anchor or Spotify and Apple iTunes. But uh, thank you so much, Skylar. Great, Tyson. Thank you so much as always. Very nice job today.